Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, I am back with Sophia. Hi guys. Normally we do lists with Sophia, but here's the thing that we really do in real life all of the time is that we do these deep dives. Something catches our interest and we pull out the phones and start doing a bunch of research. So I thought it might be kind of fun to do one of those today. And also I'm brining olives. I'm super excited about it. And it's one of those processes where there's like five minutes in between steps that you're not really doing anything. So of course I pulled out my phone and I come across this article that has the headline Neanderthal cuisine. Excavations reveal Neanderthals were as intelligent as Homo sapiens. And it really irritated me because just it's so arrogant to me that it really frustrates me. And so I thought, you know what, let me see what these people have to say about this because it just seems so incredibly arrogant to me that we in the 21st century think that we're the only ones that have any intelligent thought. You know, the, the fact that they're saying, oh, they were as intelligent as us, but there's this implied inability to extrapolate that, yeah, you know, other people think too is just terrible to me. And so here's what I read, and this is in quotation marks within this article. Neanderthals were capable of symbolic thoughts, could create artistic objects, knew how to decorate their bodies using personal ornaments, and had an extremely varied diet. Add to that, based on our findings, we can say with certainty that they habitually ate cooked food. This ability confirms that they were as skilled as Homo sapiens who lived millennia later. And me being offended for Neanderthals, ha had a conversation with Sophia. So go ahead, Sophie. What did you have to say about that? So I took a critical thinking class in college in early 2019. And our teacher talked about how when researchers do this research, obviously, if you've ever seen a research article trying to read that thing is extremely difficult. Like you've got the abstract part <laughs> where you can like kind of look at it and be like, okay, I kind of understand. But as soon as you go past that abstract, you're like, what am I looking at? What, what am I are, reading? What are these figures? What are these, what does this actually yeah. connect to? Because what I these, am lost. <laughs> yeah. What are these people talking about? What are these acronyms that they're using? Why are there so many numbers? And so to give this information to the public, a lot of times 
researchers will pay newspaper organizations or news media organizations to write about these things in a more accessible way so that the public will have this information. So you get stuff like that article or like scientists have found out that dark chocolate is great for you. Like eat it all. And you're like, okay, like dark chocolate can't be that great. And it'll be like, oh, they found out in a study of 25 that people who ate dark chocolate were happier, you know? And it's (laughs) like, you're like, okay, like, yeah, like kind of knew that, you know, chocolate's great. Like, so you get a lot of stuff like that where you're just like, okay, like we already knew this, you know? But it's like, in order to get that information out, they need to kind of make it like a clickbait article headline, essentially. You know, most of these articles are written at like a seventh, eighth grade level, which is like, I'm pretty sure it's like the standard American reading level. Mm -hmm. It's also like a, it's kind of like a jumping off point for people. Like if you were really interested in Neanderthals and you were like, oh, like what varied diet did they have? Then you could go find that article. Or you could even, if you were so inclined, go see the paper that was written that the article used and go read it yourself. That's true. The reason I clicked it was, ooh, maybe there's a recipe in there that I can try. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they'd be like, oh, they used like grains and whatever. And you'd be like, oh, cool. Like, let's Let's do that. that. You know, it's funny because that's what I tend to do. Like when I read Like Water for Chocolate, Laura Esquivel, who wrote that book, like I think in the 1950s, she has a recipe in every chapter and I made the Cornish game hens with rose petals. She had something that had like, it was a walnut and meat mixture, almost like a casserole thing. And it was delicious. And just anytime that I see some really old recipe or I can go back to planting something, harvesting it, and then turning it into something like when we grew amaranth. Do Mm -hmm. not grow amaranth, you guys. (laughs) Do not grow it. It's beautiful. It's also known as Love Lies Bleeding. So it's these beautiful green stalks with these, they have these fountains of red flowers that just are really long and they're beautiful. And that's why, you know, it's like a lot of them. So it looks like if you were to think here, Love Lies Bleeding, it's a perfect name for it and you have to pick them dry them pull all the seeds off then you have to put it through some screening so that you remove the chaff from the seed (laughs) and then you can finally do something with it what did we do with it nothing because it was really (laughs) super hard we ruined one of those flower sifters we had a flower sifter we thought we were going to be like really smart and throw all the seeds and the chaff in there and the seeds got stuck in the mesh and jammed the whole thing up. And then we couldn't unlodge it. I just ended up throwing that flower sifter away. And I probably had had it for like 20 years. Um, (laughs) So it, yeah, like, don't do that. But I will do things like that. Like right now we're growing pumpkins and we're going to roast them and freeze the puree. And then we make stuff with them over the, over the course of the year. Vladimir's entire diet is grown in our yard. And so, you know, stuff like that. So I thought, getting back to this article, maybe there'd be something. Maybe there would be a Neanderthal recipe that I could try that didn't involve allowing <laughs> fish to rot and then eating that, you know, three years later. But yeah. 
yeah, I don't know. The critical thinking class, it was really insightful with the information that my teacher would talk about or like explain to us, especially with like media literacy online. Where, like, you'll read a headline and you're like, what are you guys talking about? Like, that could not happen, you know? I don't know. I feel like everyone should take a critical thinking class. I think it's, like... I agree. Especially, like, in this day and age when you're exposed to so much media and so many people talking all at the same time. So much opinion. There's a lot of opinion and a lot of biases that are being presented as fact. Yes. And if you're not thinking critically about it, then it's it's easy to be misinformed. And that, and that goes for anything whatsoever. I know that we have like this really, really supercharged political climate. And, you know, like the minute that I said misinformed, all of these little red flags in my head went up. <laughs> like somebody's going to think I'm talking about politics. And it's not like misinformation happens at every single level and you know I'm a former fitness nutrition coach and I can tell you when I had clients coming to me to help them with their diet and exercise that there was a lot of misinformation about food and nutrients and what did what and this is why you end up with like these multi billion dollar industries, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy. Like this morning, I was listening to a nutritionist. And she said, you know, the things that really matter in your life are really boring. And so you don't see a lot of reels and posts about it. And it's things like eating well, getting outside every day, drinking plenty of water, reducing alcohol intake. She said, like, when you focus on that, instead of waiting 90 minutes each morning before you start having your first cup of coffee, like this one expert, nutrition expert says. Um, But there's like all of these things like, you know, if you wait this much time, or if you eat for your blood type, or if you eat for your body shape, or, you know, your ethnic background, which, you know, would, I don't know, for me, well, (laughs) that's another thing we did ancestry. Originally, I would say because I am a first generation American, my family came from Costa Rica, both of my biological parents are Costa Rican, my whole entire life, I have lived Costa Rica as my background. And so um, I was about to say rice and beans is like what I would have to go back to if I was following that particular diet, my DNA diet. But we just got our ancestry DNA testing and I am 40% Spaniard. Like I was kind of shocked when I saw I was like, what the heck? Because I was expecting it to come back like 90% Costa Rican. And I'm like those damn conquistadoras. <laughs> you know? Um, but I did talk to my mom and she said that there is a lineage going back to Spain. So I don't know. Maybe it was conquistadoras. Maybe it wasn't. But well, it definitely I- was. I mean, that's why Hispanic isn't a race. Because Hispanic is more like a mix of every single race. It's the diasporic yeah. connection to some form of Spanish. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, I mean, Hispanic means Spanish speaking. Yep. So I'm going to have to see. The start. Spanish did. I'm going to have to go on a deep tomatoes? dive to see what Spaniards ate. You know, they brought over tomatoes. The Spaniards did? I'm pretty sure. Oh. Yeah. 
Wow. I have to double check, but I think that they also brought over cows and horses. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is kind of funny if you think about it. Because, like, tomatoes are so, like, a part of Hispanic food. And so is cows and stuff. And then, like, you think of, like, wild horses in the countryside and, like, in the desert. So that's interesting because I just finished reading this great book. It's called The Last Ride of the Pony Express by Will Grant. I got interested in reading this. First of all, I love nonfiction. Um, and I'll read fiction books too, but I, I have really gotten into nonfiction books in the last several years. And I was reading an outside article. It was a review of this book or a promotion of the book. And in it, Will Grant has two horses and they're both geldings. And he's following this 2000 mile trail through the United States. And out in the middle of nowhere, he comes upon this wild roan horse. And he's talking about how savage wild horses are like it's a behavior that you normally don't apply to horses you just think of them as such gentle placid animals and this wild horse would kill his geldings simply because it would recognize them as domesticated as not as powerful as he was and how dangerous it was making this crossing so anyway i got the book And in it, he starts talking about this ongoing controversy about wild Mustangs and how they get rounded up. And normally what happens is they get rounded up and they go to a gentling facility, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get sold directly at auction. A lot of them end up dying during these roundups because there's helicopters and all this. And so, of course, there's two sides. There's the side that is like, This is horrible. And these horses have a right, like, you know, they represent the Wild West. They're kind of like one of the last fixtures that are here in the United States that represent the Wild West. And then you have the other side, which I'd never really heard this argument. And it was like so new to me because I've always been on this side of like, what the heck? Leave those horses out there. Well, apparently, I need to add this is that the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, has a formula of how many horses per acres can be out in the desert or, you know, wherever it is that they're running wild at in these grasslands and whatnot. And once it exceeds that number by a certain percentage, then there's a roundup because that herd of horses needs to be reduced. And what the other side says is what Sophia just said, that these horses are not indigenous to the United States. They're invasive species. They're an invasive feral species that is destroying the ecosystem for native species and native plants. And I'm like, my brain just blew up. This is why I love reading nonfiction, because you do learn new things. Like all of a sudden, I've had the introduction of the other side of the argument. Anyway, I just I wanted to bring that up. And it's a good book. Y'all should read it. Yeah, it makes me wonder if they're like the longest inhabiting invasive species that has been in America. Mm -hmm. Right? Because the Spanish came over in what, the 1500s. So that means the horses have probably been roaming for the last 5,000 5, 5, years. Thousand years. Here in the United States. 
I wonder if there's other species that have been introduced for that long in a place. Because especially in America, we see the wild horse, again, like what you said, like the last of like the Wild West. And it's very like culturally significant to a lot of Americans and like it's ingrained in culture. And like, I wonder if there are other species that have also been invasive and they're so ingrained into the culture and the landscape that... The people are like, no, they're native. Yeah, because we were born into a time where they were already here, which, you know, is something that I'm constantly saying, especially I say it about technology. Like there are kids being born today into the existence of AI. Yeah. And we see it as a problem, but they're going to integrate it into their lives and it's not going to be a problem for them. So this is where, you know, the next generation solves for something. With the horses, I don't know. I mean, like, they've been around for so very long, and they were easily domesticated. So a lot of... Well, I guess, like, dogs and cats are kind of a representation of that, too. Right? Yeah. Because dogs were wild wolves, but technically they would be considered invasive species in a weird way, you know? Mm -hmm. And also, so are cats, because... Well, I think they're from Egypt because they're desert animals, right? Cats. I really don't know enough about (laughs) their origins to even... Because I'm thinking, okay, I know that dogs evolutionarily derived from wolves at some point. But in my head, I'm going to have to do a deep dive on it and go back and go, here's where that information came in. But also, like, it also comes into a question of are dogs and wolves essentially the same species? Because... I think they're both canines. I think they're both. I mean, genetically, I guess. Genetically. I don't know. When I went to that wolf sanctuary in the Angeles forest, and it's called Wolf Connection, and it's a really wonderful, wonderful place. They're wolf dogs. It's a wolf dog sanctuary. And like I was saying, with that wild horse that would kill these domesticated horses, wolves will kill wolf dogs. Because they are not the same and they smell that in them. So it was really interesting. This is not the direction that we were going to go in. (laughs) In this episode, we were actually going to talk about Hank Williams because boy, did he have a life. But here we are talking about animals, wild animals and domesticated animals. And um, you cannot take a wolf dog pup and try to integrate it with a wild pack of wolves because they will kill it. And you can't have wolf dogs. It's illegal for you to own a wolf or a wolf dog. They have these needs that as much as a big heart would want to take care of these animals cannot provide them simply because they run sometimes hundreds of miles a night and they are pack animals. You know, there's there's just things that you cannot provide to a wild wolf in a domestic situation. And so what ends up happening a lot of times, unfortunately, is that they get euthanized because they can't be released into the wild and they can't be kept in captivity. So this wonderful sanctuary provides an answer to them. And they're in the middle of the Angeles forest. There's a huge area that these wolves get to wander. They're taken care of. They're part of education groups. And um, it's really lovely. 
So anyway, that was a big circuitous way to get back to. I still don't know. I I don't know if they are the same species. Uh, I mean, they're they are canines. They're both canines, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know enough. <laughs> I found where cats come from. Where do they come from? The Fertile Crescent around Israel and the surrounding countries about 3,700 years ago. Wow. And became the official deity in Egypt around 2,900 years ago. So they are desert animals. Check out the brain on her. Yeah. Where did you read that before? That's awesome. Um, well, I knew that they were desert animals because people talk a lot about how cats really need hydration and that's why wet food is very good for them. And that's why you're supposed to add some water to their wet food so that they have water. So anytime your cat wants water, you should encourage that because that means that they need it because they were in desert climates, which means that they know how their hydration works and stuff like that. And also they don't really sweat. So they like to keep their water inside. Yeah, that's you know? And true. they don't pant either, really. Or not usually, I think. At one point, Sithy... So we have two cats, Echo and Cytheria, and Echo thinks I'm her mom. She licked my face this morning, and it was really terrible because she never <laughs> licks. <laughs> um, and Cytheria, or Sithy as we call her, thinks that Sophia is her mother. Anyway, I think Sithy had gotten a little bit sick and there was some special food that was given to her. And I started doing one of these deep dives about like, what does she need? What is this food for, etc. And I ended up on this, um, she had like a whole string of letters behind like the whole entire freaking alphabet behind her, <laughs> her name. She was a doctorate of, you know, animal behavior and whatever studies and she put up a video about how cats drink and it was really crazy they don't actually when you watch a lot of other animals and I don't know that they all do this because that's always been my assumption you know you see the deer and the wildebeest you know the little squirrels whatever going up to the watering hole whether it's a puddle or you know a big lake and imagining that they're slurping this water up So there's a steady stream of water going into their mouths and down their throats. And, you know, now they're getting hydrated. And cats don't do that. Their tongue goes into the water and it takes a drop, tosses it up to swallow it. It's like, where did this evolutionary design come from? Like, how the hell did they survive? But clearly there was a reason for it Mm -hmm. in the desert. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing, their tongues are so dry because they're keeping the water on the inside. Like dogs, they drool. A lot of them drool or they have like very wet mouths, like kind of like we do. But cats have very dry mouths and that's why. Because they're trying to keep... their tongues. Yeah, they're trying to keep the water on the inside. So they're not like moistening their mouth. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's really cool when you can see like evolution and how like... Certain animals have certain traits because of the places that they came from or live in. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, because I feel like we got to the end of that conversation. <laughs> I don't know that we solved anything, but it sure was interesting. We went from Neanderthals to various animals and why uh, their body mechanics are <laughs> the way that they are. Are the way that they are. Um, what we were originally going to talk about was Hank Williams Sr., who 
I am completely obsessed with since my visit to Alabama to go see Cameron at the beginning of September. Mm -hmm. And of course, I listened to his music. And, you know, I think he passed away like in 1957 or something. So he passed away way 1953. So he passed away way before I was born. And his music is enduring. It's in movies it's in cartoons it's on the radio so it wasn't like i didn't know who he was but i didn't know who he was <laughs> you know what i mean and, um it was funny because one of the things that i do when i'm going to go on a trip which i think i've talked about is that again i it's just i'm calling it a deep dive but it's just something that i do all the time and it's just integral to the way that I think about things. It's like, I want to know everything about this. I will go on a search to see what are all the cool things that I can see in that place because I may never come through here again. Now, that hasn't been true for some of the places that Cameron has been stationed at. Like El Paso, he was in Fort Bliss yeah. for four years. And I think that we saw every little bit of El Paso that there was to see. Yeah. My very favorite thing, we went rock climbing in Weco Tanks. I didn't think a whole lot about it. And this is why I end up doing these deep dives, because a lot of times, at least for me, I'm going to speak for myself, I go places without really knowing a lot about it. And so my presumption is I've never heard of this. It probably isn't that big of a deal. So we went to Weco Tanks, H-U-E-C-O Tanks. I still don't really know why it's called that because it was like a homestead that was started by a Mexican family. Mm -hmm. It's in the Chihuahua Desert. It used to be part of Mexico. And I'm like, Weco makes sense because Weco is holes. And the rocks there have a lot of little holes. And the day that we went there, it was raining. So they were full of water. I don't know what the tanks part is because it sounds not Hispanic. Yeah. I don't know why it's called. It's just weird. Anyway, I found out that it is a world-class rock climbing place. I'm only saying this because if you've never been to El Paso and you are an outdoors enthusiast, you must go there. There's petroglyphs. There's also graffiti from like the Pony Express that we were just talking about, Pony Express riders that went through there. There's a lot of caves. Uh, some of them are off limits because the Native Americans also use these caves and they're very sacred, like birthing caves and that sort of thing. And a couple of times a year, they have these events where the rangers come out and allow you into some of those caves. And that happened on the day that we were there. I mean, it's just like we showed up and, you know, all the stars aligned perfectly for us to have a great day. And also because it rained, nobody was there. So we had the rangers all to ourselves. It was fabulous. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, that's what I do. It's like, I might never be here again. So I find places to go, things to see. And one of the things that popped up near Enterprise, near Fort Novacell, which used to be Fort Rucker, was the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And the thing that came up was Hank Williams Sr.'s death car. 
And I'm like, oh my God. But, you know, I have seen the Bonnie and Clyde death car. If you go up to Vegas and you cross state line, there is the bullet riddled car sitting right there. And it's the big <laughs> attraction for you to go to that casino. Crazy. Which is like so crazy. Yeah. And, you know, we are just a culture, a society that is enamored with seeing where people died. Like this is mm-hmm. super important. Or like and- people's last words. Like they have books about everyone's last words that was famous yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah stuff like that and you know this is why you see crosses cropping up along highways and you know i always get sad and i mean i guess that is the the reason for that because it's like oh my god somebody died here or ghosts we're like obsessed with ghosts too obsessed with ghosts the other side yeah yeah So, you know, it's a novelty type of thing. And so, of course, I went to the museum. There is a Hank Williams Museum, and it doesn't say senior. It's just Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. I went to his graveside, and there is also a statue there, like a life-size statue of him playing the guitar in bronze, I think. And when I was at the graveside, I thought, wow, this is so sweet that he is buried right next to his wife, Audrey. Williams. And then I get home and I start being really obsessed with him. And I'm listening to all of his music and I'm reading everything that there is. And so Sophie and I even sat down and watched I Saw the Light with Tom Hiddleston as Hank Williams. It was not a good movie. It was it was actually a really he, bad movie. He which did the best he could. He did. I love him. He's so good as Loki. Like so good. He did an amazing job. He even sang. He sang and he sounded like Hank Williams. It was terrible direction. It was just (laughs) so bad. Yeah. It was like a four, three out of ten. Like Mm, two out of ten. I'd probably give it less than that. Yeah. (laughs) But I found out that Audrey and Hank were divorced. When he died, he was actually married to somebody else. And I don't know how many people know this story, you know, so I thought, well, let's talk about Hank. Mm. Um, You know, I think we all know somebody like Hank. I think that there's just a lot of people who are like Hank Williams Sr., who was an alcoholic And, you know, it's really sad, but a lot of people are not nearly as talented as Hank. And his life, because of the alcoholism and also drug abuse, and I hesitate to say drug abuse because he had spina bifida and it became a really big problem to him. You know, it causes terrible back pain and his vertebrae did not completely close. So being on the road, his tour schedule, a lot of the things that he was doing, I'm sure drinking a lot of alcohol did not help (laughs) the situation, but he was put on some really bad drugs by his management by his handlers by a doctor who apparently had purchased his md from a magazine and had absolutely no medical training no medical background so i do hesitate to call him a drug addict although he was addicted to drugs it wasn't by choice but he was just enormously talented and i don't know enough about audrey williams 
to say one way or another. I did read some things about her, but they ended up getting married pretty young and he ended up becoming a celebrity really quickly. But he drove everybody crazy just because he also was that much of an alcoholic. And it's hard to say that Audrey was this terrible person, but she definitely put up with a lot from him, I think, because there was a lifestyle that he was able to provide for her. But at the same time, and that's the way that she's presented in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the histories that I was looking at, like she wanted to be a singer. And apparently she didn't have as great of a voice as was needed. You know, it it was a saturated market even back then. And so her voice was not up to par, but she is presented as a woman who put up with things because it would afford her a particular lifestyle. But I'm also thinking, you know, like this was the 1940s. She didn't really have a choice. She didn't really have a choice. And also I think when you love somebody, like when you're so young and you get married so young, you want to see them succeed. And it's like, you have to put up with this alcoholic, even though you love the person. Like maybe he he'll stop at some point, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. I think that there's a lot of psychology that goes into that that is not being considered in these articles. These are people who are going, well, you know, Hank was this big sensation and Audrey was just trying to hang on to his coattails throughout the whole entire thing and, and become a celebrity herself when she wouldn't have had a chance had she not been connected to Hank. Well, she also had what two kids with him so um no she had okay so she had a daughter Uh, when they got married named lucretia she had been married before to a guy named james erskine guy and i think they were only married for like a couple of years before they were divorced and so she was raising lucretia kind of on her own and you know this is another thing where you hear these stories like the 1940s was not an easy time to be a single mom well to be living in america like the war um you know first of all all of these conveniences that we take for granted today were not there Mm -hmm. yeah during the war it was during the war they were just coming out of the great depression i mean like they both grew up Mm mm-hmm during their formative years were during the Great Depression. And I think Lucretia was born in 1941. So you've got to think about the fact that women with children, whether it was out of wedlock, like forget out of wedlock already, because like that was just, you know, you might as well put that A on your chest and, you know, be named Hester Prynne. But even if it was because your husband died, and left you with these children, other men didn't want to take on the burden of having to raise somebody else's children and struggling through the aftermath of the Great Depression. And now the war has started. Mm -hmm. Right. So you do have to think about those things. I mean, it's really hard not to. Uh, Sophia's great grandmother had a great story that she shared. Her name was Frida. Uh, She passed away 2012. In 2012. So it's been 11 years that she's been gone. So her father was a minor and ended up contracting tuberculosis. So, you know, again, 
the conveniences, <laughs> the huge conveniences that we have nowadays. If you have TB, you still have to be quarantined, which is why you have to get these TB tests and prove to schools that your child does, is, not. does not have TB, right? No. Um, because we don't want it spreading, but it sure is curable now. So back in this time period, which would have been like the depression, I, I believe. Yeah, um, I think she grew up during the depression she would keep food and... Yes. So this was Illinois, Midwest again, and her father got TB. They called it consumption back then, and he died. And they doctored that death certificate so that it would say snake bite instead of consumption because the schools would take that death certificate and quarantine the girls. Their mother had to move back in with her family. And they basically lived in this little teeny tiny home and had other children, mom and dad, had other children and now here comes daughter with two girls in tow Frida and Imogene Imogene is Frida's sister and they were not happy about it it was a real struggle to live at that time and they were like you better hurry up and find a way out and the only way out for most women in that time period was to find somebody to marry so she did find somebody to marry and she left and she was one of the lucky ones to be able to get back out with children into a marriage with a man who was willing to take on these two girls but let me tell you what lucky meant lucky meant that she had four more kids Mm -hmm. in consecutive order and she suffered horribly Her health just suffered terribly for that. She ended up dying because of malnutrition and other complications because of those consecutive pregnancies. Again, medicine was not what it was now. And this man ends up with like three or four kids plus these two girls that were not his. And he couldn't afford to take care of all of them. Again, it was, you know, like, 1940s America Mm -hmm. they ended up going with an aunt and she couldn't take care of them so she drove them to an orphanage and they grew up in in the orphanage until they were 18 and able to get out on their own and and she okay let me tell you like that sounds so sad and it is it is like I don't think for a second that she had an easy life although when she would tell the stories of the orphanage it was very frequently with smiles They learned how to sew. They learned learned how to cook. They learned how to clean. Blah, 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 blah. All of those skills or duties that were assigned to women back in the day. And so she felt like she had a great education. They also educated her. So she did go through school. And the two of them had a grand life. They really were intrepid, super courageous about everything, and just loved life. So um, that was one of the things that came out of that. You know, again, it's really your perspective that gets you through life. But going back to Audrey, you know, I'm reading all of these terrible traits, these, yes, these terrible portrayals of her. They're not necessarily kind. They might not be 
terrible, but they're usually a little bit jaded. And I have to think back on that story that Frida told me about her mother and the situation that was going on back then. So anyway, she ends up marrying Hank, who took her as a wife with already a child. And then they had uh, Hank Williams Jr. So he called him Bocephus, which is really terrible. I can't believe Audrey let him do that, but I guess they both thought it was pretty funny. Hank Williams Sr. thought that Hank Williams Jr. looked like a ventriloquist dummy on TV named Bocephus. So that's what he would call him when he was a baby. Apparently, this is what he looked like. Messed up. (laughs) So anyway, the two of them get married. In short order, Hank becomes a celebrity. His alcoholism just keeps increasing. And there's mom. I just like totally bypassed mom, Lillian, who wants to really keep control of Hank. And I think as parents, we all need to know when to let go and just go, you know what? This is not an extension of me. This is another human being who has wants and needs and goals all their own that may not be what my goals were. You know, like at a certain point, your job ends as the person that's making all of the decisions. That job ends, you know, like you're there as a parent forever. You're there for life advice at a certain point instead of life decisions. Yes. And Lillian did not see that. So Audrey and Lillian clashed a lot. And again, 1940s, it was hard. (laughs) That's why you hear all of these mother-in-law stories, you know, because it was really hard. As a young kid, you're not going to have the finances to be able to buy your own place, right? Mm -hmm. So... And I'm not just talking about Audrey, I'm talking about Hank. Typically what happened was the men would find a wife and unless there was a lot of money in the family, they were moving the wife in with mom and dad. Yeah. And so families were much more united back then, you know, like there was a lot more family connection. And then at a certain point, We started moving into single home dwellings. Like it was more this whole individual idea. I don't want to live with my parents. I want to get my own house. And we become a less social country because of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Kind of that idea came out of the war, though. Mm -hmm. You know, that very like I'm like the individualistic mentality came from these wars because we were hurt from that war. Even though we did technically win it, we were still like, okay, we just came out of the Great Depression. This feels like a, like a slap in the face. And then also like we did get the economy started again. People had enough money to be able to move out and be individualistic. And that is why now we are having housing crises and all of this stuff because we wanted to have individual houses away from our parents and People look down on 20, 30-year-olds living at home, even though we cannot afford to buy houses. That kind of came from all of that. From all of that. Yeah, you know, it's really So we might be going back to the, uni- the United. two, three generations of people living in a house. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's really interesting when you start following the breadcrumbs back to, okay, what were the origins of this? And, you know, like you see the pendulum swinging. Mm -hmm. And another thought that I just had actually is the complaints that my generation, Gen X, and the millennials probably have heard from the older generation is, I don't even get to see my kids anymore. They're not around. They don't come. I'm so lonely. My grandkids aren't talking to me. You know, I have to chase them down to get them to connect with me, etc. So those single family homes created that. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this, you know, again, this dichotomy that it has a clear delineation to it where you've got this group that's like, I never get to see them, but also there should never be any 20 or 30 year olds living at home with their parents, yeah. you know, because well, those are the baby boomers and stuff like that. And because silent gen. you forget, mm-hmm. you know, like people forget when you're living a particular norm that there were different norms before and that there will be different. this, you know, it's, it's, it's transformative. It's, you know, like life and norms and culture, culture is fluid, right? Yeah. It's always changing. And like they say, we don't like change. We want to stay <laughs> in one place and, and we're never happy. Yeah, the breadcrumb trail is really interesting. Um, so anyway, these two get married and it's already a very tenuous situation Because you have this man who's living with mom and is very close to mom. And mom has formed a kind of an ownership ideal of her son. And now he's married to a woman who already has a child. So Lillian, mom, did not like this. Audrey's coming in going, I'm going to create and build the life that I want because my previous marriage sucked. I'm going to build the perfect marriage here. And it never happened. It never happened because the dysfunction was so great. And so there was always tension. And Hank was a womanizer, which often goes hand in hand with alcoholism. So he and Audrey end up getting divorced because there's just too much to handle for anybody. And he ends up marrying, like in short order, I'm talking months This, from all accounts, gorgeous woman, and, you know, the pictures that I've seen, she looks really beautiful, named Billie Jean Horton. Billie Jean was 19 years old when Hank Williams met her, and he was in his 20s, so it's not like a crazy age gap, but she was a lot younger than he was, and she was also divorced, and, of course, nobody accepted her. Lillian was not going to accept this little hussy from Louisiana, and Audrey was not thrilled with this new marriage, and within a year, Hank dies, and he dies in that car that I went to see, the Hank Williams death car. Five days after his death, his daughter, Jet Williams, is born. And he had been having an affair with this woman named Bobby Jet. So it's like this huge mess. Like he has two wives, a mistress on the side that has one of his kids. Audrey had his first kid. And he's an alcoholic with a drug problem that was not his own. And it just seems like such a crazy life to me. Yeah. 
But if you don't know anything different, then it's difficult to see outside of yourself, you know? It's like sometimes when you talk about random stuff and people are like, what? And, you, and you're like, oh, you don't do that? And they're like, no. <laughs> and you're like, oh. Like, you understand how certain people can't see outside of themselves when you don't communicate with other people or talk to them. I just feel like he was such a tragic figure. I think that's why I'm so obsessed with him. Like, everybody was trying to own a piece of Hank. Hank just never, I mean, I think he enjoyed life. I think alcohol was this huge escapism for him. I think that the womanizing was huge escapism for him because he had so many pressures. He had pressures from his wife. He had pressures from his mother. He had huge pressures from his handlers who didn't care about him. They were just, you know, all of these concert promoters and music execs and managers. They were all trying to make a buck off of their cash cow, which was Hank. And it was like, Hank, I know your back hurts today, but man, you got 3000 fans sitting out there waiting for you. Mm-hmm. take this take these pills you know i think that happens though with like a lot of famous people like like kurt cobain or like amy winehouse it's like they get so famous and everyone wants a piece of them that they don't they're not them anymore like they're like an enigma of themselves essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it just breaks my heart you know and so this movie that we watched You know, I know that it was a dramatized version of Hank's life or purported to be a dramatized version of his life. But they totally skipped over the way that he died, which I think was one of the most tragic things in his life. You know, his official cause of death was heart failure, but it was caused by a combination of the alcohol, morphine. They kept giving him morphine for the pain and also this chloral hydrate. And the chloral hydrate was something that was given at the time to circus animals, which that again, like something like that would put me on a deep dive of how terribly animals have been treated in zoos and circuses and all of that historically, you know, and why all of these rules are in place now, these laws are in place. Um, but it was definitely something that should not have been in his body. So what happened was he was supposed to play a New Year's Eve show Midnight in Montgomery, Hank's always singing there. In West Virginia, Charleston, West Virginia, but they couldn't fly out because there was a snowstorm. So they end up hiring this college kid to drive him from Montgomery, Alabama. And when they got to Knoxville, Tennessee, and they actually got on a plane out to West Virginia, which then turned around because the weather was super bad. So at that point, doctors were requested to come in to check on Hank because he was feeling terrible. And they shot him full of chloral hydrate and put him back in the car and said, drive on. So now just imagine this. He's feeling horrid. And he's probably passed out too from all of this stuff driving through a snowstorm where he should actually be in a hospital bed 
going through all of these states in the back seat of this car. And the show gets called off in West Virginia. And rather than having him turn around and go to Montgomery, they're like, take him to Canton, Ohio. He can do a show up there. So by this time, the driver is pretty tired. He calls for another driver to relieve him. And they had stopped at a hotel. Hank had to be carried by two guys into the car, put into the back seats, heading over to Canton, Ohio. And the drivers decide that they need some coffee. Hank's passed out in the back. They pull over, get gas, get coffee. And at that point, realize that Hank's been dead for so long in that back seat that rigor mortis has set in. Yeah. That is so tragic. Mm. It's so horrible to me. I'm like, what the heck? And let me tell you, in the Hiddleston movie, that was just glossed over. Yeah, there's a scene of him saying goodbye to his wife, getting in the car. And then the next scene is the crowd in Canton, Ohio, being told that he's he's dead. dead, And they start singing, I see the light. Yeah. And I was like, what? No, this is is like really important event in Hank's story. Because it shows, you know, the people that should have been taking care of him didn't take care of him. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really interesting because in the museum, I was reading the little signs. You're not allowed to take any pictures of anything in there. And it's it's a pretty big museum. There's multiple rooms with a lot of effects, memorabilia, paraphernalia, outfits, suits, the car that are all Hank Williams and the Williams family. There's a lot of other, you know, like there's things that belong to Audrey and to Jet and to Hank Williams Jr. But yeah. So there's there's a lot of cool stuff in there and it's totally worth going to. But anyway, I'm reading this little sign and it's like after Hank's death, this car went to his sister who drove it around for like so many years. And I'm just like, this is still morbid. And then Hank Williams Jr. drove the car when he was in high school and eventually it ended up in storage and he refurbished it and donated it to the museum. So that's where it rests now. To be driving around the car that your dad died in. (laughs) Like, yeah, and I think, I mean, Hank Williams Jr. was, I think, pretty young when his dad died, but it's still a weird, I, I don't know if that would be comforting or discomforting to know that your dad had his final moments in the car that you're driving around. In that back seat. What an odd thing to think about. Like, you know, you're driving down some dark road some night thinking about your dad and you look back in in the back seat and you're just thinking about what it must have been like during those last moments. Yeah, especially with a death Um, that didn't have to happen, you know, because people live in houses where people have died, but usually they're older. Yeah. Our house, there was a couple that lived here before us and the lady did pass away in this home. Mm-hmm. But she was older. Yeah. And it wasn't like a tragic death, you know? Right. She was older and it wasn't an unexpected yeah, death. Yeah, unexpected. Yeah. Uh, the car that he passed away in was a really super cool car. I like old cars. I will probably... It's so funny because somebody recently said... Because, you know, the lotto was almost $2 billion. And I thought, you know, if I hit the lotto... 
And whoever it was that I was talking to said that I would probably buy all of these old cars. And I said, no, I wouldn't. And they were like, oh yeah, I know you, you would. And I said, no, like, look at the gas prices. <laughs> I feel like cars, the, that's what the big struggle is right now. Again, that hard-lined dichotomy of people who are like, I'm going to keep putting fossil fuels in my car and the ones that are going, hey, the air pollution, the environment. But the thing that's going to solve that argument is gasoline. You know, you can't run these cars without gasoline. And at over $6 a gallon, it's insane. I hate to age myself, but I do remember when gas was 85 cents a gallon. So (laughs) in my lifetime, it has gone up like 700%. You know, and I don't expect it to really go down. And, you know, Sophie, I think you mentioned the other day that. Yeah, I remember, remember when gas was like 250 260 Yeah. And then it was like $3. And it was $3 for a really long time. Yeah. And, and you're super young, you know. Yeah. So. And now I drive past a gas station, multiple gas stations, <laughs> and it's almost $7. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. And I know California put into law that manufacturers are going to have to stop making gasoline cars by like 2030 or something like that, which is good because that means that gas will go down because there won't be as big of a demand. But it's just crazy that these gas companies can just be like, oh, well... Oil is like $100 a barrel, so we're going to make it really, really expensive for you. And it's like, what are you going to do? Not drive? Not we don't drive. have public I, transportation. Yeah. Which, again, I've talked well, about. Well, we do have public transportation. But it's but not widespread. the infrastructure of it's Los Angeles terrible. is, yeah. Because it's who ripped there. it up? The car companies. It's General Motors ripped up all of our trains. Because they wanted to make it a car DuPont, only. Because of the tires. So. Yeah. If you go back. So now we're having problems because the only way to get from point A to point B is either take a two, three hour bus to go 20 miles or drive your car. <laughs> anyway, if I win $2 billion, I know somebody already did, but were I to win $2 billion, cars, no matter how nice they are, would be pretty low on my list. But the car that Hank Williams Sr. died in was a 1952 Cadillac Series 62 convertible. It was blue and mm-hmm. it is a beautiful car, but it's just so sad. It's just so sad. And it just makes me like Hank Williams music all the more. And I'm not a big country music fan. Although I do really like those honky tonk songs. Those old ones. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they are pretty fun. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add on this deep dive of cars, gasoline, Hank Williams, cats, dogs, horses, wolves? What else did we talk about? Neanderthals? (laughs) Um, we just kind of went all over the place. I want to say... Women's rights in the 1940s, suffragists. Don't watch the Hank Williams movie. Watch Dune. It came out last year, but we just watched it like a week ago. And the first 15 minutes, I was not down with it. It's a little painful. <laughs> yeah, the first 15 minutes, um, Oscar Isaac, I don't really liked the role that they put him in. I love him, but he didn't give the the oomph that I wanted from a futuristic military general emperor 
whatever he is. I wanted him to be like, no, son, you have to do what we want. Um, and so <laughs> we, we, we literally paused the movie. I was like, I can't watch this anymore. We paused the movie, watched the trailer for the old Dune that came out in like, what, the 60s, 70s? When did oh, it come out? Yeah. 80s? It came out in the 80s. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. And that trailer made me not want to watch the old Dune, but made me want to finish the new Dune so that I knew what happened. And of course, it's part one, but Timothy Chalamet does a really good job. His mom is carrying that movie on her back. Like that, like she, Rebecca Ferguson, who is Timothy Chalamet's mom in that movie. I don't even remember their names, but Lady Jessica, Lady Atreides. Okay, first of all, can we? I know I've seen a, a a meme about the names in Dune and how they named her Jessica and him some like Rand Paul. Paul. <laughs> yeah, her name is Jessica and his name is Paul. And I'm like, really in the future, like you're naming them these names. Anyways, Rebecca Ferguson is carrying that movie on her back. Like <laughs> she does such a good job at being like this strong woman character in that movie. And I'm very excited for next year for the second half to come out because the writers finally got the money that they were asking for that they deserve. Um, So we have to wait for it to come out. But I would recommend watching Dune. It was 10 out of 10. Get past the first 15 minutes and you're golden. It was a really good rendition of Dune, which always when I'm watching a film, I always think I really need to read the book or read the book again. Because when you're reading a book, there's no limitations to what your mind can picture is going on. When you're watching a film, the things that are really stand out in your mind might have been glossed over by the director completely missed or it's a completely different picture but I feel like Dennis Villeneuve who is the director did a really good job with it because it is an old you know it's it's an older book yeah I will say I did not read the book Mm -hmm. but the movie is entertaining and Zendaya's in it so I think (laughs) Number one reason to watch that movie is Zendaya. They did such a great job. And since we're talking about uh, things that we just watched, we are currently watching The Fall of the House of Ushers on Netflix. It is phenomenal. Don't go into it thinking that it's going to be true to Edgar Allan Poe's short story. It's totally not. It's been turned into the writer and director's own vision and it's fantastic. So yeah. I would say watch that. It's we good. haven't finished it. I think we've watched two, two episodes, episodes. But it's so good. Yeah. They're yeah. very well done. Super well done. So anything else you want to add? No. I hope you guys have a good Halloween. <gasps> Halloween is uh, coming up. Friday the 13th was fun. We tried to look at the eclipse. Eclipse could not see it because we couldn't find find our our... glasses so my cousin gina gina brissenden who is on a couple of episodes of this podcast formerly worked for nasa as well as the astronomy department at arizona state university and she gifted us with a bunch of eclipse viewing glasses yeah and I have no idea what I did with them. I kind of feel like we gave them away. I know we gave a lot of them away, but I think we kept like at least three. And I feel like we would have come across them because the last eclipse that I saw, it was like 2016 or something like that. 
that's like when she gave them to us. Yeah, there was that eclipse. It was in the middle of the day. And I said, I had to go to the doctor and I called you to see if you wanted to ditch a class. <laughs> and we went and watched the eclipse. And then I returned you back. And I went back to work. Yeah. Um, and everyone was like, where'd you go for 20 minutes? And I was like, oh, to stare at the sun. <laughs> and they all thought it was so cool. That I did that. Yeah. Hey, it was it, it was a, a really good reason, I feel. Yeah. But we couldn't find them. So we couldn't look at the eclipse. Them. But the lighting was cool. So there was that. The lighting was cool. Everybody put pictures on the social media sites of these crescents everywhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, enjoy Halloween. And also let us know if you liked this deep dive kind of free form all over the place conversation. We'll do more of these. I totally enjoy them. And we do this all the time. So the next time we come on here, who knows what the subject will be. And it might vary as much as this (laughs) one did. In fact, I know it will. Have a great one. See you guys. Thanks for joining us. I hope you had a great time. Be sure to check the show notes. I have selected links on there for you to take a look at. And also, please keep sending in your questions and comments. I read them all. If you have a fun, amazing or inspiring story to share, drop me a line because I'd love to hear it. The world needs more amazing stories. And also, please take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, great conversations, elegance and beauty.